Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. His brain rebels against the idea that consistency is the foremost quality that a president needs. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. Today I'm joined by FP contributor Rosa Brooks, senior Future of War fellow at New America Foundation and professor at Georgetown University. Also with us is Jeff Goldberg, national correspondent for The Atlantic. Finally, we have FP columnist Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. Jeff. Yes. You did the definitive interview or series of interviews with President Obama in which he encapsulated and explicated his foreign policy, and it has caused a massive reaction. Are you surprised by the reaction? I'm not surprised by the reaction because he spoke candidly about a bunch of things, including the way he feels about some other countries. So that's going to inevitably provoke a reaction. I mean, the reaction that I, you, know, you get from inside the government, from people who have had to explain some of these things to allies and adversaries is, uh, you know, he could have, maybe he could have waited a little bit more. Um, but that's not his nature. He has things on his mind and he wants to share them. So I was happy to be the one he shared with. Well, it's a it's a remarkable piece of work. As I was going through it, um, I was struck by a lot. But but when I got to the end, I kind of thought, if I were an Obama supporter, and I had read this, I would go, yes, that's why I'm an Obama supporter. And if I were an Obama detractor, and I read through it, I'd go, yes, that's, that's why exactly I'm an Obama what happened. detractor. That's exactly what happened. Uh, the, on the right, people took it as an indictment of Obama's foreign policy. And on the left, the center, wherever you want to call it, people said, oh, look, a wise, mature, perspicacious man has been running our foreign policy for all these years. It's interesting. It's a total Rorschach test of a piece. Gosh, I, I don't know what this says about me then because I had an in-between reaction. I, I had the reaction of it means you're everything in the sensible center. he says is absolutely right, and I agree with him, and yet – I am so critical of his foreign policy. How can that be? <laughs> How can he be so right and so wrong? Wow, that's like a country song. <laughs> you know, that was, you know, it, 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 it is kind of a country Garth song. Garth Brooks yeah. meets Barack Obama. How could this foreign policy feel so right when it's so wrong? But I am not going to sing. <laughs> so I have a question, actually, about that description. As I read through the reactions, the only voice I heard that really um, endorsed President Obama's approach was Derek Chalet. I actually was surprised by the reaction because it seemed to me that that people lined up pretty strongly against. Who were the other voices who came out in support of the uh, president? I'm referring to normal Americans, not people from the very small foreign policy elite. Also the, known as abnormal Americans. In the, uh, <laughs> yeah, in, 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 in our little circles, um, I would say that the weight was against 
his approach. You know, that, that there, were, there was a lot of commentary uh, opposed to the assumptions that he, he makes, the decisions he made. Uh, I'm talking about a, a much broader response that I've received because I'm the recipient of all this stuff. Uh, of people saying, wow, you know, I, I, I didn't know that he was this smart or I didn't know that he had thought through these things the way that he had thought through. But uh, certainly in our in our community, if you will, centered on Massachusetts Avenue Northwest, uh, there was a lot of criticism. When you looked at it, Rosa, did you have any sort of questions or reactions that it would be, you know, now that we have Jeff Oh, here? I have so many, Jeff, actually. I mean, so... I'm nervous now. <laughs> no, well, well, it was a really fascinating piece in, in all kinds of ways, and I know you've heard that from everyone, so... Um, I think, I think some, some people, people thought it was boring. No, it was okay. fascinating. It was it was long, but it was fascinating. And it both reminded me of what I loved about him in 2008 when he was a political candidate and, and why I was such a strong Obama supporter and sort of why I politically fell in love with him like so many other Americans did, both ordinary and not ordinary or, uh-huh. or abnormal Americans. And it also made me really angry at him all over again because mm. it made me feel like the gap between... The gap between that that Obama we fell in love with and the the Obama doctrine on the streets, as opposed to give in me the one, book. give um, me one. Well, the, so the gap between the Obama who you talk about, who who says you know we got to keep terrorism in perspective. Yeah. Um, and you talk about how his aides are constantly trying to keep him from putting terrorism perspective. Too much of a too perspective. Too much of perspective. Right. And he himself oscillates back and forth. You know, there are days he say, hey, more people die in their bathtubs. And there are other days when he talks about ISIS as if it's an existential threat. You know, that, that he can't quite bring himself to apply his own philosophy in a consistent way because he's constantly being buffeted by events and by AIDS putting pressure on him. And, and it's, I, I wonder if you can talk about it's, that. It's not just AIDS, although yeah. obviously one of the themes here is that he's not quite as revolutionary mm-hmm. as maybe even he might think because he's succumbed over and over again to pressure from AIDS, from more activist cabinet secretaries. I'm thinking of one in particular – uh, actually, two in particular, one who's the first term Secretary of State and then the current Secretary of State, um, and allies, you know, so he he, he is that. I, I think there's something much deeper going on here, which is that, um, you know, I think of him, if his career had taken a slightly different turn, he'd be doing this podcast as a foreign policy expert right now. <laughs> no, no, he, he's, he's... And he'd he has, be great. <laughs> he has the disposition of a columnist yeah. in a way, and he has a very complicated mind, and he's very much allergic to bumper stickers, right. which of course is a problem when for the people who are trying to sell his policies. Um, and so I think he is having the ambivalences and sees the ambiguities in, in these issues uh, that... Smart people see. I'm not. This is not in defense of him. I just think. I just think like his his brain rebels against the idea that 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 consistency is um, is the foremost quality that a president needs. Maybe is that a fair? No, it is. It is fair, and and that's that's why I think I, I felt very conflicted reading it. But 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 I also I sort of thought, is this a tragedy? Is is he a tragic hero at the end of this to you? I think it's too early to say. Yeah. I mean, he either is. A, Look, if we go for five or ten years uh, without, you know, horrible things happening that could be ascribed to inaction on his part, then he's a genius. And uh, if, God forbid, the things that are happening in Europe happen here um, and they originate in some kind of way in the Syria-Iraq theater, 
then it doesn't look so great. Well, wait, right? a, wait a minute. Isn't Syria a horrible thing that happened that could be ascribed to his inaction? Um, I think that's an oversimplification of it. And I'm talking specifically about the way Americans who don't care about Syria, you know, let's just be, I mean, I'm, it's right. an amoral observation, but, you know, uh, I, I think, A, I, I've devised my own doctrine out of this, which is the Carly Simon doctrine which is, you know, we're so vain, we probably think the Middle East is about us. And I, and I really do, I, I haven't adopted his fatalism on the Middle East, uh, but uh, I think he's come to a conclusion that we have limited ability to shape these huge forces that are recreating the greater Middle East, recreating Islam, and therefore the attempt to try to do that will often lead to worse outcomes. Uh, so... I don't know. I mean, if you're activist, if you have a bias toward action, then uh, you think that the U.S. can step in and and write some of these things. But uh... yeah, you know, the thing that is a paradox for me, and maybe Corey, you have a, a reaction related to this, but is that it's it's not actually a, a, a binary choice between inaction and action, or understanding our limits and 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 having a misunderstanding of our capabilities, it, it could also be a, a choice between ineffective strategies and effective strategies. And, and, and even with limited power, one has the ability to produce somewhat better outcomes or somewhat worse outcomes. And, and I, one of the things that I find troubling in the core of the philosophy is this kind of binary nature where it's, well, you know, we've seen what happens when we go in, so let's not go in. But, Corey, do you have a, a, a view on that? I do agree with that, David. I think one of the worst things about President Obama's approach to foreign policy is that he doesn't acknowledge there are any reasonable choices other than the choices that he's made. So, so that's the first thing. As you suggest, most of these are extremely hard calls, and he paints them as black and white. The second thing that really came through for me in was just how yawning the gap is between what the president says and what he does. And it relates to the first point, the sweeping arrogance with which President Obama says during the Libya intervention that there are some states that can stand aside while horrible things happen, but the United States isn't one of them, and then stands aside while 460,000 Syrians get killed. Um, create The president underestimates just how much those kinds of incongruities are resented by people who are the victims of things in the world. And so he doesn't acknowledge that there are any costs to the choices that he's making. And I think that's actually really damaging. It's really damaging to America's, to how America is perceived in the world. It makes us look almost as arrogant as other presidents have looked. And that's not something President Obama seems to ever acknowledge. I think maybe I think this this just underlines Jeff's point that the the interviews end up being a Rorschach test because I almost thought the problem is not so much that he presents a series of binary choices and and frames them as so of course I did the only possible thing there was the bad choice and the and the only you know plausible choice and I made the plausible one that, that I almost thought he he is so 
determined to emphasize complexity and ambiguity they, that he then sort of takes refuge behind that sometimes. Well, it's, it's paralyzing yeah, at it's a certain point. If everything is yeah. too complicated, which it is, then you just don't do anything. Either you don't do anything or you decide that it doesn't really matter what you do because well, the everything the is sort of doomed. Well, the rational, the post facto rational, you, know, you, you rationalize right. your... Uh, if we had done something else, it would have been doomed too. Which is, might be true and might not. No, I mean, I would uh, just uh, comment on, on Corey... Uh, Point in, in, in just two ways. One is that yes, there is a certain weakness for straw men in this administration. You know, if we do this, then obviously the world will end. You know, well, that's probably not the you know the actual outcome. So I would I would say that. I would also say this, and this is uh, I'm just reflecting his observation, the president's observation, which might be a rationalization, but might not be. Which is that the U.S. is allowed, the president of the United States is allowed to condemn bad behavior in the world without actually going to stop that behavior. Uh, maybe, again, this is a rationalization for his inaction, uh, but he looks at a problem and says, I mean, this is where he gets into trouble in, in Syria, obviously, most uh, sort of most obviously, I guess. Uh, of, you know, he argued to me that, uh, you know, the, you shouldn't assume that when I drew a red line, it was about military action. There were, I, I, all I said was it would change the calculus. When I said that Assad should go, I meant Assad should go, period. I didn't say Assad should go, therefore I will help him go. Uh, again, okay, that's definitely ex post facto rationalization. It could be. It could be. But I mean, there. I think there. I think there's an interesting argument to be. I don't think it's it's completely. Uh, condemnatory behavior uh, or, or you know, behavior worthy of that level of condemnation. I don't think it's condemnatory behavior to speak out against bad things happening. I absolutely agree. Meeting with dissidents, you know, calling out uh, human rights violations. Yes, absolutely. We should speak out about those things because our moral voice matters. But to that's not the same thing as the president saying, there are some countries who can stand by, but we're not one of them. Um, that's, that's different and bigger. And President Obama does that a lot. And it comes through in the article, the way that he's kind of weirdly dissociative of policies he has chosen to make. Well, I think that, you know, that's a, that's a, let me pick up on that word dissociative, because it's come up actually in earlier podcasts in, when we discussed the, the piece. And there are a couple of areas where he seemed a little weirdly dissociative. You know, one was the one that Corey's referred to. The other is, has to do with his own administration, where he sort of, on, 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 in different cases, um, dis, distances himself from members of his team. Um, uh, What's and, an example of that? Well, we, you know, I mean, it. it, it, it I, I'm asking. I don't remember. Well, like there, John Kerry. Kerry, yeah. Kerry is an example yeah. of that, and. And we've seen other examples throughout the administration. You know, I, I you know, uh, saying, "Well, this was not a White House policy; it was a Treasury yeah. policy." Or, or the intelligence community got it all wrong. I don't yeah. know how that happened. Well, I mean, sometimes the intelligence community gets it wrong, and I don't know if it's so the worst thing in the world for the White House to say, "Oh, look, the intelligence community got it wrong." Maybe well, that's what to say. It's, it publicly. Again, it's not the worst thing in the world. It's just that there is a pattern of throwing the rest of the administration under the bus. That's interesting. I mean, I, th I think you are referring to mainly the relationship between Obama and Kerry, which is something that's worth unpacking. Obama and Kerry, Obama and Hegel, Obama oh, yeah. and Clinton, Obama and 
Petraeus. You, you do have an interesting situation in which you've had – Obama has had four defense secretaries. The first three are all critics of his foreign policy and national security. I don't know if there's a lot of precedent for that. I'm not, I, don't, I don't know where Ash Carter is going to come out on this equation. But I, I think there is – that is an interesting – he would so, – so, so what Obama would say is – Proves how much uh, I've rejected the Washington playbook and how and how mad people get when I don't do the orthodox things that one is supposed to do. What the critics would say is, no, we just think you're wrong about the way you approach certain issues. Uh, well, you know, I mean, that's that that's another thing that he does constantly, and it's it kind of I, I'm interested in your reaction to it, which is, um, he he has this disdain, and you wrote this for the Washington foreign policy establishment, right? You. I mean, you—you <laughs> you is the epicenter. He of mentioned the, your name, David. Yeah, no, no, that no, David no. Guy. Yeah, how did you, I'm just going to say D R, and uh, I, I don't know, you know. Well, you know, but no. By the way, that, that it is—it is a small group of people, and it is—it um, uh, is a small group of people, and it is you know Brookings and AEI and CSIS and foreign policy and a bunch of other places, and it's the rotating cast of characters, and he doesn't believe that they're. This is an oversimplification. I don't think he believes that it is a great repository of wisdom the way other presidents. I, by the way, resent of. you throwing all those others into it. I was I'm, very happy yeah, with this. Yeah, one. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. You, you <laughs> want to read just Barack Obama v. David Rothkopf? I understand. And yet, to me, that is precisely what makes it all rather tragic. Is that in some sense, here's a guy who comes in, and what he says is not out of the Washington playbook. And then in certain ways, so much of what he does ends up being in the Washington playbook. It's a product of politics. Even though he may dissociate himself at times from his own administration, it's also a product of the people he surrounds himself by who are very much of the Washington establishment. Right. So he's, simul- he's very mu- – that I think was the frustrating thing about reading was that he really wants to have it both ways. He wants to say, I stand outside this. At the same time, he has surrounded himself by people who are very much of it and done most of the time what they tell him to right. do. By, by the way, one interesting – Interesting example of this, I think, is his upcoming trip to Saudi Arabia, uh, which is being cast as a, let's you know smooth the waters here. You know, he said some things. He's made some comments about it's being cast to smooth the water because he threw them under the bus in your piece. I, I mean, think it we're was mixing like, metaphors. Yeah, yeah it's but, a, a water bus. But water yeah, bus. I get yeah. But it's like what I mean, like no, but, but, what but, possesses but, 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 a person who knows he's going? To throw them under the bus because he's frustrated with them for the obvious reason that a lot of Americans are frustrated with them. I don't find this. I don't find this pathological behavior. I think he's looking at our alliances, uh, certain alliances, and says, "Why do we? Why are we allies with these people? What? What? What do they do for us? Do we share values? Do we share interests? To the extent that we do, great. To the extent that we don't, why can't I? Why can't I, as President of the United States?" question the underlying assumptions of certain relations. But is it a choice between pathological behavior or healthy behavior? Or is it a choice between effective behavior and ineffective well, behavior? Well, that's a separate question. But I'm saying I don't see this as pathological. But it's the important question, right? President Obama, by trash-talking America's allies, actually makes it harder for people to step forward and lead in the way he wants them to step forward and lead. So, I don't know. I think I think when you call out for people for being free riders, it makes them think to themselves, well, maybe we should pay a little bit more. I don't think it makes them think, let's pay a little bit I less. I think if it was out of context and it was one statement, that might be the case. If it was 
in the context of Saudi Arabia, where there is a regional balance that's very important to us, and he seems to have his thumb on the scale in favor of the Iranians, who are the sworn enemies of the Saudis, and that already makes the Saudis feel in uh, 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 insecure. And then on top of that, you've got an upcoming meeting, and you need them to help you with your solution in Syria, and you want them to moderate what they're doing in Yemen. There's a whole lot of reasons why you want to work with them, and therefore X. I mean, that's the counterargument, at least. Yeah, no, no. I mean, and, and it's a valid counterargument, uh, I think. First of all, remember remember this. I, I, let me phrase this carefully. I, I don't think he cares that much about the opinions of foreign leaders and foreigners. I think if you look carefully at some of the things that he said in the piece that are controversial, is it really controversial to the American public to question Saudi Arabia as an ally? Is it really controversial at all? for Americans to hear a president say, I wish our allies did more and paid more. You know, I, I think he, he's saying these things with a, with a domestic focus, because he is not, by the way, really a foreign policy president in any case. I, I'm, I'm speculating here pretty rampantly, but, but it strikes me that these things that he says that are controversial are not controversial with Americans. They're controversial here in, in the locus of foreign policy elite circles. But allies. That I, I agree with the point you just made, which is that this is all domestic politics to the president. But they have a foreign policy strategy that is about retrenchment on the part of the United States and encouraging allies to take the lead on issues of common interest, including their own security. But doing things like trash-talking David Cameron in an Atlantic article make it harder for those allies to take leadership roles in the way the president's strategy fundamentally depends upon. And one of the things that's so tiresome about President Obama is the narcissism that doesn't acknowledge anybody else has legitimate interests or needs to be encouraged to do what it is he wants to do. Yeah, I mean, this, this I suppose, is part of why my, my own frustration with feeling like I agree with almost everything he says, and yet somehow the the gap between that and what he has done or done and not done is so great that that there are plenty of the the the, the interview is so full of of there are some things that he says that are right but he shouldn't say there are other things that he says that are right but he didn't actually act on there you, you know there there's such a funny mix of things that that if if you read it as a standalone foreign policy essay, say, by a candidate, going back to back to the good old days of 2008, uh, if you read it as, a, as an essay about a uh, philosophical approach to foreign policy, I would be hard-pressed to find anything I disagree with. Well, when I look at that in comparison to the, the record of the last seven years, there are lots of things that seem disingenuous, uh, dissociative, disastrous. Well, you know, to me, it's why I think it's actually a brilliant piece of work. Because it's, it's hard for you to say that, isn't it? No, it's not actually. It's it's but but you I look think, pained. You look pained, uh, Corey. You can't see. That's it. why it seems to me to be a, in some ways it's a tragedy. Well, but but I think I think it's an accurate depiction of a person. Uh-huh. You know that it seems like it's an insight into his mind, mm-hmm. and it seems like it's full of contradictions because he's full of contradictions, right. yeah. and there is brilliance, and there is a real effort to grapple with these issues, and there is some insight that other people don't typically have because of his position, and there is defensiveness, and there is 
playing politics and there is a little narcissism and there is a distinction between domestic and foreign issues, which really shouldn't enter into it when you're dealing with advancing national interests. But okay, so here, here's an area where I felt I just don't get this indispensability. I, unlike the Republican caricature of him, I believe he believes that America is the indispensable nation. You, you, you learn that within the first couple of weeks when nothing happens in the world without, without American capacities, capabilities. Uh, well, what I don't understand is, and, and this is my judgment, I think he would probably disagree with it, but he seems to resent indispensability. And I, I, I think, if God forbid if I were president, but if I were president, uh, I think I would sort of enjoy being the indispensable player, because I'd rather have American values informing decision making that has that goes into the way the world is organized than than, than other people. And who doesn't want to feel indispensable? This is the this is the non needy part of him that comes into play. You know, he does not need to be popular at international summits. He does not need to be to, to you know to 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 be the guy everybody leans on. He kind of finds it annoying when foreign leaders are too needy. Um, this is it, it's it's part of the personality that I don't get because I I just can't relate. That's the thing is he seems independent, and he seems aloof. He seems clear headed, and he seems defensive. He's you know there there's well, but there's that's, a that's a, and that's human and that's yeah. just that's just a human at work you know in a bigger job than most people. Have. We're putting you in the awkward position, Jeff, of asking you to uh, explain and defend President Obama just because you you did this fantastic series of interviews, which is not fair. No, no, no. <laughs> it's it's fine because I do I do actually feel at this moment that I have more insight into the thought patterns. Mm-hmm. I mean, he would probably say he barely have any insight into my thought patterns, which is fine. Um, but I think I have some level of insight into it. And, and I mean, I agree with David that it's a bundle of contradictions, and which is a very human thing. Um, and I do agree that there are parts that I don't understand. I also think that, and this is, uh, you know, again, he benefits from, from saying all of these things in this very re- weird political season we're having. Um, but if you, you, you look at what he says, he, he, you know, he's reasoning his way in a mature way to certain conclusions that, that you know, I, I think we might come to miss. We, we, we've only got about five minutes. And, and you know, I want to obviously, you know, there's a million questions to ask. But you've been doing, yeah, you know, scores of interviews on this. What's the part of the article that you were most struck by that people tend to ignore? Well, I, I get people aren't really ignoring this part, but I, I was struck by the fatalism, mm. uh, particularly as it concerns the Middle East. I mean, if you want to find if you want to find one of the problems when you go, so I went to a bunch of administration officials early in this process, and I said, "So where has he changed the most?" And you know, the, the typical answer, especially on the record, is, "Well, he hasn't changed. He's a fully formed human being, and 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 he's been remarkably consistent." But the fact of the matter is, there is this arc of disillusionment. That has taken place, right? And and it's most pronounced on on the Middle East. He starts with a Cairo speech, which was, you know, in many ways, unicorns and fairies, right? Um, and then by 2013, 2014, he's, you know, I cannot take this area. Your people are all people are all fundamentalists and tribalists, and and I want nothing and t- totally violent. I want as little to do with you as possible. That to me, sort of. Almost, almost writing off in a, a region of the world because it is so devastatingly horrible at the moment is is something that I think needs to be paid more attention to because that's where the most cons- that's where the consequences are. Uh, I, I think you know, uh, and I didn't do 
again, you know, it, it's the classic thing. I wanted to pivot more to Asia in the piece. I wanted to pivot to Latin America and Africa, and I, and I didn't. And, and the, the parts that I had in there, I think, are very interesting. But again, when we have conversations about uh, this sort of stuff, it's, it's all about the Middle East and Europe. And I, and I think one of his great frustrations, and I want to write more about this, is he has really pronounced ideas about how to manage our relationships in Africa and Latin America. And he's frustrated, and I think a lot of people in the city are frustrated that you know, no one actually cares. Uh, and I want to get more into that. Look, Corey... Last word or comment from you. Uh, I think one of the really, so I agree with um, a lot of what Rosa has said about the president's back and forth on this. One of the things that really strikes me coming out of the interviews is the president seems to believe we get to choose where we engage in the world and that, you know, what's happening in the world uh doesn't determine those choices, right? As opposed to events, dear boy, events being what drives it. The Middle East is where our values are being fought for, our security is being fought for, and we get to choose whether it is being fought for by us or only by the people in the region. But it really does seem weird to me that the president seems to think you can you can whitewash what's actually happening in the world and determine where the United States gets mm -hmm. involved and that that choice will have no consequences. But I, I think he's not only ambivalent about U.S. power, he's ambivalent about his own power as president because, mm -hmm. and, and he, that, that comes through too, when he, on the one hand, he, he, he makes these uh, uh, declarations, such as the one Corey quoted earlier, about the U.S. will not be the nation that stands by, others might do that, not us. But at the same time, he says several times in, in the interviews with you, um, oh, well, I can't say certain kinds of things. I don't want to cause a panic or anything like that. And, and, and you know, he may want to pivot to Asia. He may want to pivot to Latin America. He may want to pivot to Africa or all three but that's partly up to him, right? I mean, he also, he never chose to invest a substantial amount of his own time and political capital into making the things that he says he wanted to have be higher priorities, be higher priorities. And, and yes, events, 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 but, but there's a piece of this that is sort of strangely disconnected to, wait a second, you are the president. If that was really your priority, you probably could have made it the priority, but you didn't. And that, that seems there's a strange vacuum there. Well, there's the, again, it's contradictions. It, I think it reveals the president as intellectual, the president as oracle, the president as commander-in-chief, the president as victim, the president as observer or play-by-play or, uh, -play announcer on global mm. affairs. You know, I mean, he's got all of these things in his character, and if you're a fan of his, you say the... The positive ones outweigh the negative ones. And if you're a detractor, you say the negative ones outweigh the positive ones. F final question, Jeff, and I, and I don't know if you feel comfortable answering it, but Probably what's, not. What's, the, what's, the, what's the reaction of the White House been to the reaction to the piece? Um, I can give you that in, in a sort of a general scope. I, I think that they, they felt it was, on the one hand, a fair depiction Look, this is a president who talks in whole paragraphs, and so whenever somebody actually will go out and quote him in whole paragraphs, it's useful for them, I think. Uh, they understand that it was a fair assessment and a thorough assessment. Uh, I think uh, the piece caused them some obvious problems in managing 
relations with other countries and, and other leaders. And so there was some kind of resentment there. But I, I believe that the peace is sort of short-term pain for them, long-term gain. Long-term gain in the sense that there are so many caricatures of his foreign policy that at least whether or not you come out thinking that this is this is these are wise policies that he's enacted or not enacted, I think people will at least see, and I think they understand this, will at least see that the man has put some thought into this, uh, and especially in this political season when no thought is going into foreign policy. Uh, I think that they understand that that it will be received over time pretty well. It's a great piece. It was very thought-provoking. I think it will provoke discussion for a long time to come. I hope you keep writing about it because I, I'm sure there is much more to be mined out of it. I'm really glad we had the opportunity to talk about it here at the ER. Thank you, Jeff, for joining us. Thank you, Rosa and Corey, for joining us again, as you always do. And uh, thank you, those of you who are listening, for listening. And we look forward to having you join us for the next edition of the ER, which will come, you know, as it does in a week or something like that. Uh, thank you, uh, everybody. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe, please visit foreignpolicy.com. And thank you very much for joining us.